Scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along with me in your Bibles or on your Scripture sheets. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all, all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And that was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who had told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what happened. This is the infallible Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture that we read just a few minutes ago with Bill from Luke chapter 24. Before we look in depth at this passage, let's pray and ask the risen living Christ who is present with his people, ask him to teach us by the power of his spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you. Our eyes set upon you as our Father. We come as children asking of their Father. We come as priests, Father, not just prophets taking God's word to Fayette County. And it is a joyous message you have given us to take. But, Father, we come now before you for Fayette County as priests, as priests for our family as priests for our neighbors, as priests for each other at Christ's Presbyterian. Our Father, we thank you for how you have answered, how you've heard and answered our prayers in such clear ways. And so we continue to come and ask. Bless Father Shirley Copeland. We pray that you would bring peace and calm and joy to her heart. Even now, that joy that can never be shaken, can never be removed. Father, we pray that you would wipe away the tears. And bring the power of your gospel to bear upon her heart. 
We pray that you would bless the worship tomorrow in that memorial service. Now, Father, we pray for Priscilla Turner that you would bring healing to her body, to her life. We pray especially, Father, that you would continue to strengthen her heart and soul. We have witnessed the courage. We have witnessed an unconquerable spirit in her, and we pray that you would continue to fill her with your spirit. Bless Janet Sartell. Thank you, Father, for how you have preserved and kept her. We pray that, Father, you would bring healing. Healing that is beyond what medicine can do. We pray most of all that you would give her a strength of heart that knows no fear, that knows no anguish. Fill her with your spirit. Our Father, we pray for Rick Abernathy's uncle this morning, for Truett Cates, that you will bring healing to him. Father, you know his spiritual and physical needs, and we pray that you would meet those physical and spiritual needs. And now as we open your word, We pray that, Father, you would teach us. Come and teach your children this morning about your great story, your favorite story, the story of the victory of your son, the story of his resurrection, and the change of all of creation and all of history. Father, John Sartell is not able to speak in any way that would do justice to that story. You alone can speak so that we will be profoundly affected to the very core of our beings. And so we pray in these next few minutes that we would hear your voice in our hearts for the glory of Christ. Amen. The resurrection unbelieved or trivialized. A young lady called Dr. Laura on her syndicated radio program. The young lady was having a problem with her fiancé. She said that her fiancé, that she and her fiancé, were both Christians. But she had a problem because the church he attended, that church did, did not believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. She was troubled that she was thinking of, of marrying someone who, even though he said he was a Christian, denied a cardinal doctrine, whose church denied a cardinal doctrine of Scripture. Dr. Laura replied, tell me something. I'm a nice Jewish girl and I don't understand all these ins and outs. What difference 
does a resurrection make? When I heard that, I was amazed. I am amazed that a Jew, a Muslim, a pagan, an atheist with any intelligence would make that statement. Really? What difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make? If you want to understand post-modernity, that's what it is right there. It really doesn't matter. It's your truth. What was shocking, however, as I listened, was that the young lady could not answer Dr. Laurel's question. Even though she was a Christian who was so concerned about the resurrection, she could not state what difference does it make. What's the significance of it? Which says that she was a believer, but she thought like unbelieving postmodern. This morning, in the midst of this celebration, do you believe? Do you believe? in the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not that it's your truth or my truth, but that it is true truth, unchangeable truth, absolute truth, that the incarnate Son of God and Son of Man was raised to life. Do you believe that? And if you do believe it, what does it mean? What's its significance? I believe the church as a whole, even the evangelical church, tends to trivialize the resurrection. When pressed, what do we say? What does the church say when we say, what's the significance of it? First, I want you, as we look at this passage, to see historical resurrection reality. Historical resurrection reality keeps interfering with our unbelief. It's happening today, and it happened on that first day of the resurrection. No one, read Luke 24, no one, Not one person was looking and expecting the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone knew Jesus was dead, and they knew he would stay dead. Let's read it again. Look at the first verse. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices. They prepared and went to the tomb. What were the spices? Those spices were to anoint a corpse. They were literally shocked, astounded the corpse was not. The women were looking for the body of Jesus. They had not been able to join Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea in the burial of the body. These women wanted to do their part. 
their spices would be applied to the burial cloth in which Jesus was wrapped. They did not believe the words that Jesus had spoken previously about his resurrection. These women that morning were unbelievers to those specific words of Christ. What happened? The historical reality of the resurrection slammed into their world. Peter and the twelve were no different. The women, you look in verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and the others. But they did not believe, look at verse 11, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed nonsense. Why did their words seem nonsense? Because people don't rise from being dead. And Jesus was dead. And there was no expectation on the part of the women or on the disciples. When he went to the tomb, what happened to Peter? He goes there, he's not expected. Even with the words of the women, he's not expected. What happened? The historical reality of the resurrection slammed into Peter's world for the next few days. The historical reality of the, reality of the resurrection continued to slam into the disciples' lives as various ones. Remember Thomas, I'll not believe it. The eleven were saying it's true, we saw him. I'll not believe it. Or the ten did. I'll not believe it until I touch the scars. And then Jesus said, here, Thomas, touch the scars. Look at the passage. Think with me. Luke did not begin the resurrection story with, with a theological treatise on the necessity and significance of the resurrection. I have read volumes written by brilliant theologians on the significance of of the resurrection. But that's not what Luke did. It's not what Matthew did. It's not what Mark did. It's not what John did. Luke began with the unbelief of the women, the unbelief of the disciples, and described real life historical terms, the resurrection. He described it as a historian. He described it as a historian Josephus would describe Rome laying siege to Jerusalem. The women, Peter, the disciples, thousands of others, and then Paul were all forced from their unbelief because of real life every day historical resurrection history. It kept confronting them. David Lodge is a playwright. On November 22nd, 1963, he was sitting in a theater watching one of his own plays. There was a scene in the play that called for the character to turn on a radio and tune in a local station. Now, this was not staged. This is a real-life part of the play. They would turn into an actual radio station 
in the city. And because of that, the play being different times of day, they always turned to a different station. And there would, the, 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 whatever was being, the music, whatever was being said on the radio was live. In this specific performance, the audience was really into the play. The character turned on the radio and began to turn through the stations. He settled on one that was coming in clear. And the audience heard the words of a very anxious newsman. Today, in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. The actor quickly turned off the radio, but it was too late. The real world had broken through into that theater. That is very much what happened to the disciples. There was a reality that they had missed. They had not been there to see it. What were they doing? They were going through the motions of their lives. Jesus was dead. And they would just have to face it as best they could. The women would go and anoint the body. The disciples, some of them, were headed home. That was the reality. That was their reality. Men don't rise from the dead. That's how the world comes to us, by the way. They look at, they look at Christians as living in some kind of Nether reality, semi-reality. They say to us, if you want, you can believe such nonsense. It's a harmless fairy tale. We understand. But we live in a real world. That is what you need to tell the world. That's what the disciples did also. That's what the Sanhedrin thought. That was what Paul thought until he ran in to Jesus on the Damascus road. The resurrection reality. Look at this and understand it. The resurrection reality. The historical reality of the resurrection keeps interfering with our unbelief. Secondly. I want you to look at this passage and see that we do not empower Christ. He empowers us. Look again at Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the, took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They found the stone rolled away. You know what's significant about that? On the way to the tomb, the women had been talking with each other. We read this in Mark. In Mark 16.3. They asked each other. It wasn't one. They asked each other. We've got a problem, ladies. Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Not one of us, not of all of us together can budge that stone. If you could travel through time and walk with the women that morning, you would laugh to yourself as you heard them talking. You would say, ladies, God's already taken care of that. He's taken care of that in a way that you can't even begin to imagine. Who's going to roll away the stone? 
in a way, we approach our Christian faith in the same way those women approach the tomb. They were wondering how they were going to get to Jesus. How they were going to anoint his body and do for him. We think the same way. How am I going to get Jesus raised in this unbelieving culture? How am I going to make him real to my friends? How am I going to get my family through this quagmire of secularism in our culture? How am I going to get my family through that in a way that they will still have faith? You see, we think we must rescue Christ from the unbelief of the world. Who's going who's gonna to roll away the stone? How are we going to do that? How are we going to anoint the body of God? How are we going to make Christ real? The disciples, the 11, were faced with the same dilemma. What did the last three years mean? We did all that time. We spent all that time with Jesus. Was it just wasted? He's dead. In the, in the remainder of Luke 24, we read about two men, two disciples of these 11, and, and they're leaving the city, and they're on their way to Emmaus. And what did they say? We had thought he was the one. Past tense. What were they doing? They were going home. How would they rescue what Jesus had taught, how would they rescue that and make it meaningful in their lives and in that culture? You've heard me speak quite frequently from this pulpit about my experience in training for the ministry in, in seminary, in graduate school. I went to a very liberal graduate school, a very liberal seminary. Most of my professors, even though they were church leaders, they did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't believe that the Son of God became flesh. They didn't believe in the miracles of Jesus. They certainly didn't believe in a resurrection. One of those professors had studied under Dr. Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich was a modern theologian who tried to take a demythologized gospel. What I mean by that? Demythologized. You've got to take the myth, you've got to demythologize the gospel, you've got to take the myth out of it that God became flesh, that's myth, that Jesus made blind people see and deaf people hear and allows people to walk just by command. That, that really didn't happen. He was just an ordinary man, a prophet, a teacher. You've got to take the myth out of it. He, he really didn't rise from the dead. And as an aside to this, if you started reading Paul Tillich, if you go home and look up Paul Tillich and maybe order a book of his, and you, you start reading it, and you're going to think, wow, this is really, really, really deep. No, he had a way of just taking simple thoughts, making them so complex that he sounded brilliant. In reality, Tillich was wading through the shallows of unbelief, but he put it in complex patterns and terms. 
I listen to my professor, and I finally understand what his life had become. You see, he no longer believed the gospel, and he was trying to rescue Jesus, this Jesus without that the incarnation really didn't happen. He really wasn't the Son of God. He really wasn't, he, he really wasn't the one who made blind people see and deaf people hear. He really didn't rise from the dead. And he was trying to make that Jesus real in his world. He was trying to empower that Jesus. You can't take those things out of the gospel and have any power in it. I love the vivid graphic imagery of C.S. Lewis. He said about such efforts, we castrate and then we bid the geldings reproduce. Let me tell you, that kind of Christianity will never reproduce. The basic preaching that we make is preaching to sinners, to preaching to fellow saints, preaching to fellow sinners, and saying we must be born again. What is a rebirth? It is a supernatural rebirth of the human soul. My professor was in the place of Peter and the other disciples where they found themselves that weekend. They were trying to rescue a ministry they had thought was worth something. They were trying to empower Christ who they thought was dead. Sunday morning changed everything for them. They no longer had a Christ they needed to empower. They had a risen Lord saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You don't empower to me. I empower you. That's the statement of the resurrection. What did Jesus say? You wait in Jerusalem. You wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when he comes, what? You will receive power because it's Christ that empowers his church. It's Christ that empowers us individually. It is Christ that empowers us in every aspect of our lives and faith. Most of us believe, who do believe in the res historical resurrection of Jesus, most of us do in this church. I believe that. But most of us are still trying to empower a nice, meek, and mild Jesus who doesn't offend never irritates, doesn't bother, doesn't judge, and much less condemn. We try to empower that Jesus. I want you to do something with me. Look at Revelation chapter 19. It's on your scripture sheet. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who's on that white horse? Who's on it? The babe of Bethlehem is on that horse. 
The Son of God incarnate is on that horse. The one who made blind people see, deaf people hear. The one who said, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The Christ of the cross and the Christ of the resurrection. That's who's on that horse. Does that person on that horse sound like somebody that you empower? May God forgive you if that's your view of Jesus Christ. The next time the world sees Jesus, that's the Jesus they'll see. Resurrection reality keeps interfering with our unbelief. We do not empower Christ. He empowers us. And finally, we can believe the resurrection and still trivialize it. Look at verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. What was Peter thinking right at that moment? Now, he was not alone. John, a fellow fisherman from Galilee, was with him. Look at John 20, verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They both believed. But look at verse 9. And this is John writing later. This is John giving testimony to what he and Peter were They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. What was John saying? We still didn't understand the significance of what was happening. At that moment, they knew he had risen. The resurrection was being trivialized by their own lack of understanding. And that's true for so many of us. There are two levels with the Christian. This morning, if you're a Christian, there's two levels in which you have to deal with the resurrection. First, you must believe in the historical reality of it. But secondly, you must understand what it meant. The power of it, the greatness of it, the significance of it. If we look at this, we may say we believe it. But folks, most of us this morning in reality, we trivialize it. We may not mean to, but we do. Let me remind you of a true and wonderful story. It was early in Peter's relationship with Jesus. Remember, Peter, in the beginning, had met Jesus near Jerusalem and had walked back to Galilee with Jesus. Well, Peter had been out fishing all night. He was on the shore, clinging his nets. They hadn't caught anything. Jesus was nearby preaching to a crowd, and the crowd had so pressed against him that he was right at the shore and Jesus turned to Peter and said, Peter, let me borrow your boat. He got in Peter's boat and they went out from shore so he was far enough away to where he could see the whole crowd and he continued to teach. After he finished teaching, he said, Peter, throw your nets out over there on that side of the boat. Peter looked at him and said, we've been out all night fishing. We know this lake. We've been fishing it since we were children. You're a preacher. Come on now. Jesus said, Peter, throw your nets out. Peter threw his nets out. And suddenly those nets were taut. Fish everywhere. And Peter started pulling and he had to call other boats out from the shore to, to, to haul the fish in. It was so great. He had never seen anything like that in his entire life. It, it was so awesome that he knew immediately that this was supernatural. And you know what he did? 
You've never done this. When you've seen somebody catch a lot of fish, you've never done this. Peter fell on his knees before Jesus and worshipped him. And at that point, that's when Jesus called Peter to be his disciple. What was the significance of the miracle of the fish? Peter understood something very profound. He understood that somehow what had happened, only God could do. And he fell at the feet of Jesus. You know what he could have done? Jesus, we can make a killing with you telling us where to fish. We can retire in a year. Let's go count those fish, Jesus, and get out on the lake. Peter would have been trivializing the miracle. He would not have realized its true significance. That's exactly what many of us do with the resurrection. Go back to the story of Dr. Laura. What difference does the resurrection make anyway? Dr. Laura had two problems. One, she did not believe in the historical reality of the resurrection. Two, if she hadn't believed, she trivialized it. What difference does it make? The young mother was freeing, was fleeing Hitler's invasion of Poland. She found herself on the last train out of the country. She was desperate with her firstborn, a toddler, and a newborn, just or too old. The bombing was fierce and the train stopped over and over again. A trip that should have taken hours took days. They ran out of food. They ran out of water. When they arrived at the destination, the infant was starving and ill. A group of nuns met the travelers at the train station and took the infant to the hospital. But it turned even worse. The hospital was bombed. And they came to the mother and told her that the baby had not survived the bombing. The mother would not hear of it. Even though she was a doctor, she had faced death many times. She went to search for a baby. She searched through the rubble with her toddler in tow. Suddenly she heard a baby crying. She ran to the sound and began to pull away the debris. And incredibly, there was her baby, alive. Did it make any difference? That baby was alive. How would that, how could you make that trivial? That's huge. It made the difference between mourning and profound dancing and joy. Dr. Laura would say, or doc, would Dr. Laura say, what does it matter whether she found the baby or not? She wouldn't dare say that. Now listen to me. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus is much, much, much incredibly, much, much larger in significance than a baby being found alive. Jesus' resurrection was an event of cosmic proportions. Are you kidding me, Dr. Laura? What difference does it make? Folks, it matters. It matters incredibly that Jesus came from the tomb. When we're faced with death, 
when I'm faced with death, it matters that he rose from the dead. When my loved ones are faced with death, it matters that he rose from the dead. When my brother went home to glory, it matters. On the authority of God's word, on the authority of his resurrection, I know Mike went home to glory. I know my dad and my mom went home to glory. I know on the authority of the resurrection that as they live and die in Christ, I live and die in Christ, I will see them again. I know that death has no foothold where Christ has risen. It matters when we're faced with decision, moral decisions concerning greed and materialism, selfishness and immorality. It matters. It matters because one day I'll stand before him and give an account of this very week. Means, if you still don't understand, get this, it means that is indeed creator, he is indeed sustainer, and he is indeed redeemer. It means that he is the Alpha and Omega. It means that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords that shall ride that horse in Revelation. It means for from him and through him and to him are all things. We close the service with a great hymn about not just Jesus' resurrection, but our own resurrection for all the saints who from their labors rest. Before we sing that, we're going to stand. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical reality, and you love the Jesus of that resurrection, say, join us as we say together, confess our faith, with the Apostles' Creed. Let's stand. Christian, what do you believe? Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of Virgin Mary, suffered in the Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and they rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.